Well, hello, and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, we've, uh, we're back uh, to talk about another interesting topic for you guys. Um, but just before we do that, I'm your host, Dale, the representing the Christian or skeptic, uh, Seeker side. And I'm David, the skeptic. Okay, um, so, so yeah, this week is really a, a, a follow-up um, to what we discussed two weeks ago on subsumability. So this was really the issue that David wanted to discuss about sufficient, what I call sufficient attachment. Sorry, uh, what I call sufficient attachment. And uh, really, this topic, sh- in hindsight, should have come first before the issue of subsumability. But uh, the subsumability was my first blog. I didn't know anything about the podcast, so I wasn't really thinking of, of doing a series or anything like that. Um, but anyways, so we're going to be talking about sufficient attachment this week. And uh, in layman's terms, I think David's described that as basically, if we can prove one proposition or an essential proposition, um, can we drag along with that uh, other propositions based on the validation that we got uh, from the resurrection, for example, in the case of Christianity? Does that does that drag along the proposition that Jesus was God and, uh, you know, Jesus died for your sins and that sort of thing? Um, so in terms of the sufficient, atta- sufficient attachment, the first thing is uh, I'm aiming at a burden of proof for the reasonable person, uh, the legal definition, uh, which is, you know, an average person, average intelligence, uh, average knowledge. I think this is, God would uh, operate at that level. Um, So, for example, if I were to claim to be a prophet of God and I made three unfalsifiable, you know, essential claims that were uh, attack, you know, that was part of my religious message, and then God gave me a miraculous verification. Uh, say I healed an amputee right in front of you, and you know this is proof that I'm a prophet of God, and and I, boom, I I healed this amputee. I think the three essential claims would come attached to that. Um, so how do I do this with? Because my blog articles, let's just assume that the resurrection of Jesus took place. Uh, you know, the supernatural resurrection of Jesus by God. Um, would that? Uh, would that? Uh, would the other propositions that Jesus taught as part of his religious message come attached to that? I think the answer is yes for the reasonable person, because God would not allow uh, the undue confusion that would result. Uh, of having, you know, such a miraculous event said to attest his religious message, all those uh, unfalsifiable propositions, most reasonable people would be, or at least a reasonable person could be taken in by, by that and say, well, the other things he teaches must be true. But then at the next level, Jesus also had followers. He had disciples who later became known as the apostles. They also, uh, these, these apostles were chosen by this religious prophet. So if, if you buy my argument that the, prop- the added propositions that Jesus himself taught are authenticated um, and attached to the religious miracle event, then the apostles likewise could have it added additional propositions in their teachings that would have been attached uh, as well, because otherwise God would have, 
uh, been guilty of causing undue confusion. You know, a, a reasonable person would look and say, well, these guys were chosen by Jesus and Jesus was a prophet of God. So therefore, I, I think we can trust their essential teachings as well. Um, now, here's where the it gets a little bit more complicated um, and where I expected David to have the bulk of his objections. Well, great. Uh, a skeptic could say we don't have the teachings of Jesus or, or the teachings of the, the original apostles anymore. What, what we just have is the Bible. Um, so what I'm going to be arguing is that the Bible itself as a whole is sufficiently attached uh, to Christianity. And um, the way I get there is, number one, if you remember... If you remember from subsumability, I, I made the argument that it's the first uh, message that we have chronologically. And in terms of what Christianity is, that, that is biblical Christianity. The New Testament documents are the earliest, and listen to this, David, it, it's the earliest enduring um, set of propositions that we have that define Christianity. So if you want to make the argument, oh, well, the Gospel of Thomas dates to the first century and, you know, John Dominic Crossan thinks that that dates before uh, the New Testament Gospels or something like that, um, the Gospel of Thomas was not enduring. Nobody knew, no Christians knew about that or used that text as authoritative in the year 1200. Um, so once you get that, it's the argument is God would not allow, providentially allow the undue confusion of Jesus and the apostles' message, original apostles' message to be totally erased. That, you know, his purpose in giving the miracle of the resurrection to Jesus was to authenticate a religious message in order for us to achieve our ultimate purpose in creation, which in a Christian context is salvation. God would not totally let that be erased from history. It has to be something that endured uh, throughout history. And that's the New Testament, every Christian on earth, Catholic, uh, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, they have the same New Testament documents, uh, which are the propositions um, that are given. So the propositions of, that define Christianity, this is the inspired, claimed inspired literature. And we, we have three reasons why a reasonable Christian thinks this. First of all, Christian tradition asserts this, that the New Testament is the inspired word of God. It is the canon or the standard that by which... We should judge uh, doctrines and that sort of thing. Uh, the second is uh, Jesus. Um, the second is Jesus's own attitude towards the Old Testament, and uh, this establishes a precedent that okay, God, uh, when He reveals His message, He also uh, accompanies that essential message with written documents, which are preserved and used by subsequent followers uh, as a standard for how to attain essential Christian doctrines. Um, the third one, and let me just scan down here. I forgot my third point. Um, doo -doo -doo. Oh, and yeah, uh, so as David proved to us last week, the New Testament and the Bible itself refers to itself as the Word of God, as a special, it, it demarcates itself as this set of uh, special propositions that uh, define Christianity proper and, and define Christian life and that sort of thing. Um, so those are my three reasons why, why a reasonable person at least could conclude that 
okay, the Bible is sufficiently attached to Christianity, which Christianity is just the religious message that goes back to Jesus that was attached to the resurrection proper. Now, as a final thing, we get into the issue of, okay, but what if there's Bible errors? Because you're, you're saying the Bible as a whole is sufficiently attached. Does that mean that Bible, the error, if there's any errors in the Bible, uh, that they come attached to Christianity as well? Um, well, my answer, shockingly enough, is yes. Um, I, th- I think that you can't just pick and choose like Thomas Jefferson and, and oh, well, this work, this doesn't work, this isn't part of God's word or, or that sort of thing. You have to take it as a whole and deal with what you've got. Um, so, then, so then the issue becomes, well, how do you deal with Bible errors then? Um, how do you make sense of that? Why, why would God allow his religious message as taught by Jesus and verified through the resurrection to be contaminated by, by these biblical errors, if, if they exist, uh, which I personally think there are at least some, um, but, you know, there's many Christians that are biblical inerrantists, so, um, but if there are errors, they would be attached, and that means that it requires a justification or uh, as to why God would allow these to be in the text. So the way I've conceived of coming of addressing these is, okay, well, what is the purpose of the Bible? It's it's sufficient for what? For salvation? Oh, it's it's sufficient for God's God's purpose of inspiring a religious message to Jesus through the apostles and then subsequently into the Bible is to allow us to attain salvation. Our ultimate purpose in being created. God is a perfect being. That that's his purpose in divinely revealing and, you know, providing us with revelation in the first place. Revelation is just a communication from God for a specific purpose. Um, And as all Christians admit, that purpose is for us to attain salvation. It's not to gain truths about how the Big Bang cosmology took place or, you know, what, how small or big, uh, what, what's the smallest seed in a, in the world, you know, it's not a botanical lesson or something like that. Um, so under that framework, I, I say that God cannot allow for undue confusion to occur. And I define undue confusion as confusion that would hinder, uh, unfairly hinder someone from achieving uh, their ultimate purpose or salvation within a Christian context. And there are varying degrees. You know, if you want to say Jesus made, made an error in the mustard seed or, or there's an error in the age of uh, some king in the Old Testament. There's a contradiction there. So, uh, great. If we want to say that's an error, it's so trivial. It, you know, it has nothing to do with essential doctrines as to how you get saved, how you, you know, what salvation is about or something like that. It, it's very trivial. And it's, I think that skeptics sometimes get lost and over, they lose perspective with these little things when they think that, oh, because there's this little error here, that means the whole thing is, is thrown out. Um, but no, you have to remember what the purpose of the divine revelation was. And it, it wasn't to teach us what the smallest seed was or, you know, was, was, how did snakes lose their legs in the Garden of Eden? That, that's not the primary purpose of Scripture, uh, of divine revelation. And... Uh, let me just, I had another point and I don't want to forget it because it was, so yeah, so there are varying degrees, um, 
as to this undue confusion that, you know, certain doctrines are more important and would cause more undue confusion than others. I think that it's, you know, if, if we found out Moses didn't exist, that seems to be more significant in terms of interfering or hindering um, God's, uh, God's purpose for us, for our achieving salvation rather than if, uh, you know, oh, the age of some king contradicts in First Kings versus First Chronicles or something like that. So by that scheme, we can grade or grade the significances of the various errors uh, with the most essential doctrines found, founding the core uh, of that religion. Um, you know, William Lane Craig compares it to a web where the <clears throat> central doctrines are in the middle um, and then the there's various layers of lesser important doctrines and the outer rim ones. So if you take out one of the essential doctrines, the whole web collapses. Um, and if you take, if you take out uh, one of the outer peripheral ones, it may cause some reverberation in the web, but the web itself wouldn't collapse as a whole. Uh, my friend Gary Habermas also uses a circle chart to represent the same sort of thing. Um, now, with undue confusion, it's an important aspect, because I know David's going to be bringing this up in his response, um, that undue confusion doesn't just refer to God allowing for confusion to result that hinders our salvation, uh, because David's going to point out that there, there are such cases in Jesus' teaching, for example, and I'll leave that to him to present that. But it's also the case that the person himself is responsible. If you remember back in a previous podcast, there are certain conditions that the person listening to the message, ha they have to be sincerely open-minded. They have to actively seek the truth. You know, if you don't understand something, go go and ask the question or do a little research or, and, and try to figure it out to the best of your ability. Uh, and also, thirdly, you have to be willing to obey and, and follow that truth uh, once you realize uh, that it is the truth. So um, that those would be the two elements of undue confusion. It's defined by confusion that hinders our salvation and arises would arise only when the skeptic fulfills those three conditions that I gave to David the other the other uh, podcast. So with that, I think I have covered everything. Um, so yeah, I'm going to turn it over to David because I've been ranting uh, quite a while here. So over to you, David. Okay. Um, Thanks for hanging in there. <laughs> ah, where to begin? Where to begin? I'm going to... I think I'll start by saying I think that your argument unravels all on its own, and it really doesn't need me to pull its strings that much. Uh, the beginning of your argument is basically... Um, one true confirmation of uh, an extraordinary event confirms the the whole. Um, but I would say that if you, you know, if this is a, a true, honest formula, then one disconfirmation should disconfirm the whole as well. And that's something that you don't uh, agree, agree with. Uh, beyond that, though, you can't say the whole is confirmed and then at the end of your argument say, yes, but there are also some errors. So the whole is confirmed except for the errors. 
becomes your argument. And that's not really an argument for anything. So we've, you know, this extraordinary miracle has confirmed everything except the errors. So now, what are the errors? <laughs> so what, what, what exactly does it confirm and what does it not confirm? Uh, we're still kind of back to square one uh, with that, as long as you're acknowledging that there are some errors that are not confirmed uh, by this confirming miracle. So I, I, don't, um, I don't think that your argument really gets off the ground. Uh, from that perspective. So maybe I'm just going to throw it back to you and have you unravel that a little bit so that I can know where to go with that. Okay. Um, so yeah, let, let's say there is some minor error about the age of the Kings, um, or some, something like that. That's not, as I said, it undue confusion is related to the essential doctrines when God, God, what is, okay. So you're saying only the essential doctrines are confirmed by the miracle of the resurrection. Um, yeah, at, so, okay, only the essential doctrines, I'm, I'm 100% certain that the essential doctrines have to be confirmed by the, uh, by the resurrection or by, you know, some miracle that Jesus uh, performed, right? So, secondary doctrines um, have varying degrees. So, for example, you know, Adam and Eve, I, I was arguing last week that the existence of a literal Adam and Eve, an historical Adam and Eve, is not essential to Christianity. And I was trying to come up with some way to, to justify that, that they're not that they're not essential. That doesn't mean I don't I'm I would say I'm about ninety-five percent certain that they that they need to be literal in order so if, if they're not real, I would say I'm ninety-five percent certain Christianity's false based on that. But I, I can see there's there's a possi- small possibility that Christianity can be true without them because they're not. <laughs> it's a very small possibility, yes, though. I yeah. mean, you're, well, you're, you're threading this needle pretty finely. Yeah. If you're saying, if you're trying to get me to believe that the one confirming miracle of the resurrection confirms everything in the Bible, and yet you're you're telling me that there are exceptions to that. Now I'm back to square one, uh, where I've got to now confirm each thing independently, and, and your su- sufficient attachment theory just falls apart. If the resurrection does not confirm the origin story, then sufficient attachment is not true. So think, think of it this way, right? Because you need, in order to, okay, I for, here's what I forgot to mention in my intro. So. We were banging. You were banging me over the head about Christianity proper. How how do I go about defining that? Um, in this case, right? With if there are Bible errors, how, basically once I've got that the Bible as a whole is sufficiently attached, errors included, if there are, right? This is the standard by which we go by. I I use the Bible itself to define which propositions are essential, either by verses that say that are explicit or that are implicit in the fact that they're essential for achieving salvation. Because, as I said, revelation is defined as a communication from God, right? And God has purposes as a rational being for revealing, um, for making such revelation. And in the, the Christian context, that's so that we can achieve salvation. This is why he created us, to live in a safe how do you know how do you know he revealed things so that you can achieve achieve salvation 
that that's a that's a claim that you can't possibly know. I mean, I understand why it would make sense to you that God revealed so that we could achieve salvation. But you are you are actually making a claim that that God does not make for Himself, and you're you're applying your logic to Him, and you're you're now making it necessary that the reason this exists is so we can achieve salvation. How do you back that up? Okay, so let let me um, rephrase it because I'm talking from within a Christian. You know, if God is uh, authenticating the Christian message, uh, salvation is is that. But in a general way, my second the second premise of my eleven premise argument, um, which you have, is that uh, go one exists or God outcomes exist. So God, as a rational free agent, has reasons or as your friend Val likes to put it, motivations for why he does any free, free, any, does any action. So we don't know what his reasons are. Okay. So his ways are above our ways. Uh, and we can't possibly know. Okay. The the least reason for the least thing he does. So listen then. So great. Okay. You, you give me that God has an ultimate purpose for creating human and resulting in human humanity. We don't know offhand what the heck that is unless he reveals it to us and then authenticates that revelation so that we have a way. The resurrection is a way of saying, okay, well, this is the divine revelation. If I'm going to figure out, uh, you know, why am I here? What's, why did God create, create humans, create the universe and that sort of thing? The Bible being sufficiently attached gives that to me. It, it has certain verses where it's explicit So there are these uh, explicit and implicit uh, verses which tell us, you know, in order to be saved, you need to believe that Jesus and died, uh, Jesus died and rose from the dead for your sins, for example. Um, you know, in Romans, there are verses that you need to confess Jesus as your Lord. And in the context, uh, that seems to imply that Jesus is deity. Um, so once you get the Bible as being sufficiently attached for the reasonable person, then you can use the Bible itself to define Christianity proper. And that's how I come up with my definition. Um, Now, what I think is happening is with the skeptics, when you're like, well, if it's sufficiently tethered, there can't be any errors. God has to preserve it perfectly. He can't allow uh, any contamination of the word uh, of his sufficiently attached uh, book or revelation. I I think that you're suffering from a loss of perspective um, that often comes you know, when you're struggling with these types of, of doubts, as you know, basically it, it's you're you're focusing solely on such a difficulty and saying, well, nothing, nothing. The essential, the reason for God revealing the truth can't be true then, because there's this contradiction about the mustard seed being the smallest seed or, or something. It's kind of like a person who holds his thumb in front of his face, and you know, it, it looks bigger than the Empire State Building in, in the distance. You, you know, there's a loss of perspective. You're making these smaller secondary issues to be a bigger issue than they really are when when all god wants to do is his we can be 100 percent certain that his main purpose in revelation is just to provide us the essential goal um, of why he created us in the first place now it, it could be the case that yeah it, maybe god did make an inerrant bible and he he did also reveal you know certain scientific truths but i don't think we can prove that 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 has to be the case. It, it could be the case. It's possible. 
right? Okay, that but you also God can't prove that you're 100% certain of any of God's goals. I mean, that, I, I think that's an overreach, uh, what you just said there. I'm, I can oh. be 100% certain that God's goal is, no, you can't. Yes. Uh, okay, so sorry. So I can be 100% certain that God has a reason for creation. And if he revealed it to us, through the Bible, through my sufficient attachment scheme and verified by the resurrection, um, then we can use that Bible. So obviously I'm not 100% certain that Christianity is true or that the resurrection happened or something like that. Um, But I'm just saying once we operate on those, once you give me the Bible, then I can use the Bible to define what the essential doctrines are. Okay. So, Does that make sense? Um, like, so, like is, is there a Bible verse that says you have to... There's no Bible verse that specifically teaches biblical inerrancy. Um, you know, there's no explicit verse you can point to that... Okay, uh, well, when the, the Bible the says all scripture uh, given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction of righteousness, that the man of God be perfect, thoroughly furnished in all good works, uh, it said all... That verse... That verse says nothing about the size of a mustard seed. Okay, does well, it? it says all scripture. All yes. scripture is good for what? What is it good for? For doctrine, you're, you're for going... doctrine, correction, okay. instruction in righteousness, that the man of God will be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. That's what okay. it is for all scripture. Now, if the verse had said, you know, some of this stuff. You can do without, but a lot of scripture is profitable for correction. <laughs> you know, that, that's a different passage and that's a different Bible. But all scripture seems to hint at inerrancy to me. Inerrancy in the sense, that verse is saying inerrancy in the sense that um, it's good for, you know, moral living and instruction and theological major... Okay, but it's not good for that if it's wrong. But it's good for that even if if it's wrong about the size of a mustard seed. Yeah, then then that passage is wrong. No, it's not. A wrong, an incorrect statement about the size of a mustard seed is not profitable for anything. It is. The the main purpose of that is to teach, uh, you know, provide a teaching as to what the it's kingdom a lie, of heaven though. is if like. If you're saying that that is important for providing teaching, then it's a lie. And, and, so, <laughs> and so we so should reject me, the Bible on the basis of that. If you're saying it's not, so a, I, wait, I if you're I, saying it's not important, okay, if it's not important, then it's not profitable for those things that 2 Timothy 3.16 says it's profitable for. So if, if you're saying okay. that that is a part uh, of scripture, geez, then it doesn't work. So you can say it's not a part of scripture. So no, so the te- first of all, the teaching, okay, okay, I remember, good. So the teaching itself is that, it, it, the teaching itself is like the kingdom of heaven grows from, you know, it starts out really small and grows. That's the theological teaching behind the parable. And I'm just operating off memory. Right, I don't have right. it open But I don't there. care what the so theological teaching behind the, the parable is. If the parable, but the Bible if, but if the parable is incorrect, if it gives incorrect data, then the teaching is incorrect. It would be kind of like saying, you know, I've got good intentions to lie to my kids about these things. So never mind the facts. I'm lying to to keep them in line. I'm I'm lying about monsters 
so that they'll be scared enough not to do certain things. Well, I'm still lying. Yeah, I, okay, just, so I, if, I think most reasonable people disagree that the fundamental teaching, the, the teaching behind that is it's not about which seed is the smallest. It's that, okay, the kingdom of God is like the smallest seed on earth. So if you want to supplant the mustard seed with whatever, I don't you know what the smallest seed is. You can't say that a lie is profitable for instruction. You can't say that an error is profitable for instruction. When, when we have uh, textbooks yeah, full of errors, we, we, we try to take them out of the schools because they're demonstrably full of errors. Now, your argument has it to depends. be okay. that these errors are profitable for instruction. And I would fundamentally disagree with you. Which and I is. would think that anyone who, okay, then you're talking about a Bible that no one should care about. I, I think most people, even, even biblical inerrantists, re- recognize this. They they would say it's not even an error. Like if they they, I I don't, I'm not sure I agree with their definition. So I th- I think I'm on your side, and I would just claim it's an error. But you know, biblical inerrantists say, okay, yeah, the size of the mustard seed, it, it's the Bible is inerrant only insofar as it's the doctrine it's trying to teach in what it teaches or affirms. So it's not affirming that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. It's it's affirming the teaching that the kingdom of heaven is like this. It starts off as the smallest thing imaginable, but it blossoms out and grows. Okay, but what you ju- what you time. just said doesn't have errors. And what the Bible says does have errors. And if it came from God, I would think that it would say what you just said and not what it actually says. There there's a way to say what you're what you're trying to say that the Bible says without the errors. So if God is doing it, you would think that he would say it in the way that it would be said without the errors. Okay, well, let me, let me just say something, first of all, in terms of inspiration, how it works. Like, how, how is it the case that God could, be, uh, could allow errors to get into his word of God? But um, just before, before I do that, um, I wanted to just mention that, in the first place, th- this verse that you're pointing to in 1 Timothy it's, it's not part of the definition of Christianity proper. Why? Even though it's sufficiently attached, it, it needs to be accounted for if it's, if it's erroneous in your way, right, in your interpretation. But it's, it, the verse doesn't say in order to be saved, you have to, you have to follow all of the moral teachings or, or take all of Scripture as a method of instruct, teach, profitable instruction or whatever. I, now, I, I think that is very probably causes confusion. I'm on your side. I, I think that if there are moral errors, for example, like let, let's say the fundamental teaching as I say it of that verse is forget about the size of the mustard seed. Let, let's pretend the th- there's a the- the theological doctrine is what I'm saying that the kingdom starts out small and then grows. Let's say that's wrong. That is an error. Um, if somehow we prove that that is an error, that would be much more problematic to me. I, I would just say, okay, well, this verse is an error, but I, I think it's very improbable that God would allow such an error in, to occur because it, it does result, it very probably results in undue confusion, in my opinion. But there is that small little possibility that you can just say, well, First Timothy is an error and Christianity's still true, that the verse itself doesn't explicitly say, you have to believe that scripture is profitable for instru- all, in, you know, it's all of scripture is profitable. <laughs> well, Do you see what, you see well, what I'm I going to tell right? you, but, you, you're just making it impossible for me to take the Bible seriously. I mean, if, if the thing that 
attests to the Bible in the Bible can't be trusted, <laughs> then on what basis? Yeah, on what I, basis can I trust anything else in the Bible? But look, let yeah, me it's, let it's, me let me just um, interrupt you here again. Well, I had another. Okay, go, can well, I, go ahead. Yeah, because I because I forget stuff when you, when we do oh, that. So I, I wanted you to have just no idea talk the stuff that I've forgotten just in the last five minutes that I wanted to say. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, I'll be fair then. So I'll, I'll let you go then. I won't interrupt. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, so, I mean, it's give and take. There's, there's no moderator here. So we're just both okay. badly behaved uh, conversationalists. I thought, I thought you'd be, I thought you'd be proud of me. I'm becoming more American every day. Right? <laughs> no, I'm, pr- I'm proud of you. But then, but then you back down. So, uh, <laughs> so. okay. Well then, okay. Then, uh, all right, here we go. So, so yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that, <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, yes, there is a de- with what I'm going to is sort of a worst case scenario. I, I don't think we should just, you know, at least to a slippery slope argument. Well, what else is an error? We, we can't really trust anything apart from the explicit uh, and or implicit verses that say this is essential for salvation. Um, yeah, it does lead to, you know, like some Christians being concerned about Thomas Jefferson. And it, it's not something we should... Um, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't abandon taking verses like this seriously just willy nilly. It should be something that um, you take very seriously and only come to that conclusion as a as a worst case scenario, right? So um, that's that's why I say I, I'm ninety five percent certain this verse that you're pointing to has to be true in in what it teaches. But it's at least possible that okay, I, I can throw out this. Thomas Jefferson was was right. The only thing that matters is what the Bible says is essential to achieving the purpose, aka salvation, but I won't use those words, achieving the purpose for which God revealed, uh, caused, gave the revelation in the first place. Now, as to how I, how inspiration works, I wanted to say a little bit about this, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, I, I promise. But there are different there are different ways that God inspires, right? God, inspiration just means that scripture is God-breathed. Um, and usually what we think of in Sunday school is the dictation model. You know, God um, dictates or, you know, the Holy Spirit comes over the person and then he dictates, you know, like kind of like the Islamic notion, right? You know, I was happy today. I was happy today and that sort of thing. That's not the way inspiration works in the Bible. There is the confluency of scripture, which is basically there's the inspired there's the human element you know there are verses that express human emotion or or there you know it very clearly represents the uh, the human author the human agent is perspective or there's things that are trivial you know like greeting the apostle paul greeting this person or something what what's that about why why that doesn't sound like it's god doing that it sounds like god that's the human agent coming from the human agent so I take, under a Molinistic framework, I take the supervision theory of inspiration. So God in his, prof- uh, in his uh, middle knowledge knew in advance what the human agents would write down of their own free, free will, free will and accord. Um, and then providentially, he used that to become, okay, well, these are the inspir- inspired words, because inspiration works at the verbal level, the very words themselves are inspired by God um, in the sense that he allows the human agent to uh, write down whatever he wants to accomplish his purpose. That could include 
errors that the human agent uh, wrote down or, or that, you know, like the size of the mustard seed or the, a contradiction of the age of a king. Um, so with that, I'll, I'll turn it back to you, I promise. No interruption. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, you don't but. promise that. <laughs> um, okay. So, uh, yeah, you're wrong. Uh, I don't, I, I, I can't, I can't buy into that model even for a moment. Uh, so before I go back to inspiration, uh, let me let me go back to the thought that I uh, had about ten minutes ago, uh, because there are probably people listening to this screaming, you know, why are you talking about the mustard seed? And I, I found it interesting that you mentioned in your article and you spent uh, much of your time talking about it here on a on a thing that I think we would both agree is a is pretty minor. Uh, I mentioned it in my book uh, because it's just an example of being wrong, but it's not just the Bible being wrong. It's Jesus being wrong. So it's um, it's kind of a double wrong there. You know, you can't say, well, Matthew got it wrong. No, I mean, this is the words of Jesus. If Matthew, if Matthew is misquoting Jesus, uh, then we've got an even bigger problem. So this is Jesus getting it wrong. If Jesus is getting it wrong, Jesus isn't God. Uh, and if it's not Jesus getting it wrong, then the Bible isn't worth uh, reading at least from that author because he's making up stuff that Jesus said. Um, but that said, yeah, the mustard seed, not the biggest uh, error that I would point to in the Bible. So if you want something that really touches on doctrine uh, itself. Hold on one second. Are you, are you, a, so you seem to be admitting that there is a gradation then. There are, some errors are more significant than others. Are you admitting that? Not, necess- not necessarily, uh, although okay. that, that is a possibility. I, I think that under an inheritance view, the smallest error that is arguably insignificant is still significant. Because okay. there should, you see, the, the thing is there should be no errors. So if someone says there can be no errors and you find an error, then the whole is busted uh, under the no errors doctrine. So, uh, yeah, you, you don't get the right then to go back and say, well, but that's just a small error. No, that's an error. And you said there were no errors. So mm-hmm. in, in that sense, it, a small error does destroy the whole. But it, you're trying to suggest, well, only the big errors matter. I'm, I'm suggesting even the small error can be a big error if what you're saying is Jesus made a mistake. Jesus doesn't get to make a small mistake it still be considered God. And if the writer is misquoting Jesus, then the writer is not accurately portraying what Jesus said either. And so we can't, tr- either we can't trust what Jesus says directly, or we can't trust what the writers say about Jesus. So in that sense, the mustard seed uh, example still ends up being a bigger example than you want to admit. That said, i I would like to bring up a bigger example if what you need are examples that uh, directly talk about doctrine. I would even go back to the Old Testament to the doctrine of generational curses. On the one side, throughout the Old Testament, you have them saying God punishes to the third, yea, even the fourth generations. And on one or two occasions, it goes all the way to the 10th generation. And you've got the other part uh, where a couple of times it says, no, you, you heard that thing about generational curses, right? Well, yeah, forget about that. The soul that sins shall die, and the, the son will not be punished for the sins of the father. That is a direct contradiction, and it affects doctrine. So, 
contradiction is is a category of error. It is an unmistakable error in the Bible, and you're going to have to choose or do some fancy hermeneutical dancing to say, oh, wait a minute, that's not an error. It is a doctrinal error. Okay. Um, okay, so going back to, first of all, with, with Jesus uh, and the mustard seed, so you think it's bigger, first of all, in the first place, no, the gospel writers did make up speeches that Jesus never historically said, and that's not a problem. That's a feature of ancient Greco-Roman speech writing. They follow Excuse the me, you mind if I repeat that? Time. Uh, the, the writers no, 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 no. made up stuff that Jesus said, and that's not a problem. Did I, did I just quote you correctly? Yes. Okay, yes, we you are, did. We because they, they preserve... That's skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. No, no. <laughs> Go ahead. No, no, no. I want you to finish. I'm just saying. <laughs> hey. That's... So you claim to be a Christian when you're shocked by something. Have you seriously never heard biblical scholars talk about this? Of course I have. With speech writing? Yeah. Um, In fact, the the scholar that I'm thinking about in particular, um, now now, uh, he slips my mind. I've I've been thinking about him for a little while. He debated uh, Bart Ehrman uh, on Unbelievable. Craig Evans? No, not not Craig. Um, Bigger than Craig. but anyway, it'll it'll come to me. Oh, Dan Dan Wallace. Yeah, not him it. either. But that, but there are okay, yeah. No, no, no. As you're as you are bringing out, there are more. There's more than one scholar that that takes this approach. So yes, I'm familiar. I I think it's okay, bonkers, so. and uh, I think that a lot of Christians would also say it's bonkers. So this is not an atheist versus Christian thing. This is a Christian on Christian thing. Yeah, it's. So the, the way it would work then, if you're not a strict inerrantist, is, yeah, as long as it either one preserves the essential gist, if, if Jesus actually did um, give a speech and it preserves the essential gist, or as a worst case scenario, even if there was no speech that, uh, you know, an occasion of which the gospel author is using as the basis for his speech, so long as it's consistent with what the author knew Jesus would have said. There's, there's nothing in the mustard seed speech that would contradict the teachings of Jesus, then that was acceptable under the standards of ancient Greco-Roman, um, Greco-Roman biography uh, and speeches of, of that time. And also, I would theologically, that's perfectly accept- acceptable. I, I don't believe Jesus went around teaching, you know, I am that I am kind of thing, the, those I am statements. And but he was God in the flesh. That that that's not a contradiction. That's not theologically problematic to me. That the gospel writer is teaching a truth. Well, but it is theologically um, significant whether he said it or not is significant. Yeah. And if you're saying he yeah. didn't say uh, it, that's a very significant difference. Then it was, it, you know, it's true, but he didn't say it versus it's true and he did say it. Okay. Well, I, I would take. It would be more, perhaps, a more important error than the mustard seed thing. It would be more significant, but it it would still be less significant than if Jesus, uh, if John is saying Jesus said that, but it's not true. Jesus was not God; he was just a human. Okay, prophet. but how, how that, about interact with the example I gave you, though? Uh, gen- yeah, on, yep. on one so side, I generational curses, to- uh, good to go. On the other side, no way. That's ter- that's a terrible idea. Now, when you when you comment on that, I, I want to follow up. Uh, because this is this leads into a very important part of my uh, uh, overall objection with your overall uh, theory. Okay, um, so 
just one last thing quickly on this mustard seed thing with Jesus, and I want to get it out there because it's gonna it's gonna be shocking for Christians. But Jesus, I think it's possible that Jesus himself, maybe Jesus did say this. He maybe he was in error. Maybe he didn't know that uh, the mustard seed wasn't the smallest seed. But that's still and it's we're still done revelation again. Thing. It's, no, no, it, <laughs> no, no. But no, if, if it were, if my argument works for the Bible. God's revelation, Jesus is God's revealed word, the living word. It's the same thing. Because God, Jesus, it, it, in terms of how the incarnation works, his omniscience was subconscious. He didn't know all things while he was, at least while he was here on earth. Even in heaven, he doesn't know all things. He doesn't know when the end of the world is coming. Only the Father knows that. So there is, even though he's omniscient, it can be subconscious. So this is how we would... Wow. Yeah. Okay. If you want, we should do a show on the Trinity no. and the I've done a lot of. Okay. No. Okay. Um, so general rate, generational. So it's possible. I think it's very unlikely. It's improbable that Jesus would would have made it an error, um, or or it's problematic. But it, it's plausible. It's possible that yeah, Jesus screwed up. He messed up about the size of the mustard seed. So be it. The essential doctrines are. Are still true. If if my argument works for the Bible as a whole, it works for Jesus as a whole. If it works for the written word, it works for the living word. Um, now, generational curses. Yes, I would agree. This is a this is a more significant error to me than the mustard seed or the age of a king. It's it's still not an essential. It's still not an essential belief as wait, defined wait a by how, the, the how Bible. How you're going to be uh, cursed by God? Um, or not, you're saying that's not essential. I think to those people at that time yeah. it was extremely essential. I don't. I don't think that you can get more essential than uh, you're under a curse versus you're not under a curse. Uh, well, it's not essential to achieving salvation. It is, it is for, that's salvation for them. So you can you can argue that that that's may not. not be true under Christianity, but at the time it was being bandied about, it was absolutely essential. Are, are you okay, so are you in general, the good graces of God? Yes or no? Well, that depends. Are you the third or fourth generation of someone who sinned? Uh, then no. Or did you sin yourself? Uh, then no. But it's it is a very essential question. That is a, that is the salvation question for the people of that time. It's so it's it's not an essential doctrine. the The entire Bible is sufficiently attached, right? In terms of when we're assessing it today. Um, and that's what my argument is focused on. We, we have the New Testament. Now, as to these people, general, general race, generational curses deal with the nation of Israel, not individual people or souls or, or their individual salvation. It's, it's a corporate entity that's in mind. And it's saying that when you mess up, Israel, um, it, you're, it's not only you that's going to be paying the consequences of this, but generations to come will be paying for the ramifications. You know, when you when God uses Babylon to judge the nation of Israel for its sinfulness as a corporate entity, um, it's saying, yeah, well, you know, Daniel's going to be in, Bab- in exile in Babylon too, even though he's a righteous guy. Um, he Daniel would be saved, according to the, the Israel um even according to Judaism, right? He was a he was a righteous guy, but he was paying the consequences, the earthly consequences of corporate Israel. Okay. You know, it's the, a the national con- focus. The, 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 the counter to 
the the idea of the generational curses was I want to say Jeremiah eighteen, uh, maybe verse four thereabout. Um, so if you want to look that up, you can. I'm going by memory from from many years of not having looked at it. Um, Jeremiah four, fourteen. I, I want to say what? I want to say Jeremiah eighteen. Um, in you know maybe just look at the first two to four verses in there. Um, so this is what I sh- what I should have said instead of yeah uh, because is that what you're well, saying? what okay. I'm saying is what the what the Bible actually says is it makes a uh, clear delineation between the old way of looking at it, which is to say your kid uh, you eat sour grapes and your kid's teeth are set on edge, but but no more I say uh, from here on out the soul that sins shall die. No longer will the uh, sins of the father be uh, placed on the sins of the son. That is a doctrinal change. By the way, I was not reading that. I was I was going off of memory. And so, if someone reads that and says, "Well, no, it doesn't say exactly that," that's that's the gist, if I can use your word there. Um, and okay. so, that is it is a co- contrast between one doctrine and another doctrine. This is an example where different people in different parts of the Bible had different ideas about what the doctrine was. And that conflict is never truly fully resolved in the Bible, if you ask me. So that that remains a tension and a conflict. So this, yeah, so this is an issue that I can't wait to see Randall Rouser uh, take you to task uh, because this is related to progressive revelation. Um, so, so tune in next week, guys. <laughs> I'm just joking. Dave, David can handle his own. I'm sure Randall. he'll do good. But <laughs> Randall, I'm counting on you. Come on. <laughs> um, but um, so, so yeah, it's true. If you want to look at it simplistically or whatever and say, oh, it's a contradiction. Like I, I fully expect you to be saying, well, there's, there's clearly contradictions because you know, the book, the prophets had a different view of the sacrificial system than the uh, than the, the Torah, people that, you know, lived under Torah, the priests and that sort of thing, right? The, the prophets are seen as, you could, you want to say they're contradicting. Obviously, that gets into a debate. I, I don't see it as a contradiction. It is progressive revelation, and I'm going to leave that to Randall Rouser to defend if, if that topic comes up in, in your thing. But the generational curses is a national deal. The, the prophets are starting to focus inward to the person. It's not enough just to go through the motions. You, you know, God, uh, okay, let me, God let me just wants you, you to... Is that an error or not? Okay. I'm, I'm looking at the clock also no. for 54 minutes. So no, I would it not is, say So you would error. not say that on the one hand, generational curses, y'all, and no no more generational curses, soul that sins, y'all. You think that that's not an error, even if I throw in the spice of God does not change. It was the same yesterday, today, forever. He's not human that he uh, should change his mind. You don't see that as a major change? No. No. Then in um, that case, like I don't I said, think that you can ever say that anything in the Bible is an error. Because there's there's nothing... Well, I do somehow. Uh, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, you do somehow. And yet, it's hard, to, it's hard to pin you down on exactly what you think an error is. If that's not an error... If, if the generational curses thing is not a contradiction uh, where you've got two different groups having two different views about what the truth is uh, about God and how he deals with people, if that's not an error, I cannot understand what you mean by error. It's because the, in the time of the prophets, the priests were misunderstanding the purposes of the, 
like the generational curses. Well, how are am I supposed to know when someone's misunderstanding nation. something in the Bible? All I know is that the Bible well, says the it, and all Scripture is profitable for uh, doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction of righteousness. Uh, that's all I know. And so you're telling me, oh no, sometimes you're looking at something and it's just a mistake. Well, okay. So think of it this. So the verse, the first verse, the generational curses in the in the Torah. I'm assuming, right, Deuteronomy or something like that. Um, it says the nation of Israel, when you guys act bad, you will be you will be punished, and generations after you will be will bear the ramifications. Well, it, for it was that. very specifically that the, the sins of the curse. fathers will be visited on the sins of the son. Now you can say, well, visited, that's all. Okay. That's that's all. Uh, speaking of the nation of Israel as a whole, maybe it is, maybe that's not. That's a hermeneutical question that I'm not prepared to get into. But I, I think that it may be both, that that the son is held accountable for the sins of the father, uh, literally, and that the uh, further generations uh, would be accountable for the sins of earlier generations. So I think, that, I think that they're both true, but I don't think that you can say, well, no, it doesn't really mean that by appealing to just one of those interpretations. So it's, it's not saying that they're held accountable on an individual basis, that they, you know, as, as though, and, okay, and yet, the And yet the, the Jeremiah passage says just the opposite and says, no more will you be held accountable for the sins of your father. The soul that sins will die. So it's clearly talking about individuals. So it, it is treating the previous generational curse pronouncement as if it were talking about individuals. And then it's saying it's not going to be like that anymore. Okay, so I, I need to, so number one, if that verse, I need to look into that verse, because I'm looking at Jeremiah 18, I, I don't see where you're saying that, so it's obviously someplace right, else, look, and I need to look into you, that. If but, you just talk, just I will saying, give it to is, you. I will, I will, okay. uh, I will so put it This is hands. what I, the nation of Israel obviously impacts people. The sins of the Father have ramifications on people, right? If the king, if the king of Israel is sinful and... And Ezekiel. That, then the ramifications are of his Ezekiel. Yeah, sorry, Ezekiel eighteen. I told you it's been a it's been a while. And instead of um, verse four, verse twenty, the one who sins uh, is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness uh, of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wickedness charged against them. Now, if I run that passage back, I think that I will get to the um, bit that I was talking about uh, where the, you know, you've heard it said of all that the, the father eats sour grapes and the child's teeth is set on edge. Uh, so that's that's another time where this passage is, uh, where this idea is mentioned. Concerning, oh, okay, concerning the land of Israel, corporate entity, the fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. That's what I'm saying. That ramifications happen. If I if I if I pretend I'm a woman and I'm pregnant, if I drink alcohol, my kid's going to be messed up. He's going to his teeth are going to be set you on is edge. That the contrast here is saying it won't be like that anymore. It the contrast is now the soul that sins will die. So you, you, can, yeah. you can't so take is, you can't just is, take one of those and say, well, no, that's about Israel, and, and then take the other one. But that's about individual sin. No, they're they're both about the same thing. It's it's a contrast yeah, so saying it's, that this old way of looking at things is wrong, 
and we're ushering in the new way of looking at things. It's not saying it's it's wrong. It's saying it's just saying it's done. It's, well, so that so would I'm, be wrong. I'm taking it as after the. This is in the context of the Babylonian exile, right? So they they did that, um, and they were punished, just as the Torah says. Um, now God is saying, okay, so now that's that's not going to happen oh, anymore. So no more generational Your, curses. That's in not. Other words. It, it, it's yeah, it's not generational curses though. It, it's talking about no more. If you want to say yeah, there's no more. There's not going to be another exile. Is basically yeah, okay. what he's saying. Um, yeah, I don't see these as contradictory. I, yeah, I I would disagree. So again, looking at the clock, okay. I, I, I will have at, to just say I will have to back down to I will disagree. But I I do think um, that we you know if the if the goal today is just to point out things that are wrong in the Bible um, or or contradictory or errors, I think that's trivially easy. And uh, and I think that some of those things are on important issues. Your play is going to always be to say, well, you know, but that's not essential. And then we get into uh, the book of Dale, which is, uh, you know, Dale's book of essentials. And I assure you that Dale's book of essentials is different from Joyce's book of essentials, is different from Justin's book of essentials, is different from my parents' book of essentials. Uh, th- there are no two books of essentials that are exactly the same. And so if, if you're saying, well, what the resurrection proves is that all of the essentials in the Bible are true, then we still have all of our work in front of us determine what the essentials are. And I would still disagree with that proposition too, but it's, it's so much lesser of a proposition than uh, the resurrection proves everything in the Bible is true. That I don't, I don't find it, I don't find it meaningful. Furthermore, if well, let me one one more thing though. Furthermore, if you say, well, it's only the essentials. Well, for some people, that's a very short list, which means that most of the Bible is useless. We can we we can ignore most of the Bible. Mm-hmm. We just we need to pay attention to you know the bits and pieces that matter. Now you've got to, you know, you've got your work in front of you to determine which are the bits and pieces matter and which of the bits and pieces don't. Okay, so I, remember, I, I gave you the way I do it. My book of essentials is the same as the Bible's book of essentials. I use what the Bible tells me explicitly or right, implicitly. The Bible, tell, is the Bible tells other people different things. I understand that you think that you, you've got an airtight method of figuring out the essentials. Everybody has an can airtight you, method of figuring out the no essentials. Yes, I, they I do. I can't <laughs> think of one. Can you think of one person who says the resurrection of Jesus is not an essential Christian doctrine? Who says so, that? No one. So I, because there's an explicit. <laughs> I thought you said everyone has their they own. They do have definition. their own definitions of it. I assure you, you take any any list of ten, it's going to be different from someone else's list of ten. And uh, you know, this experiment has been run many, many times. I can point to the tens of thousands of Christian denominations. Never mind just religious denominations out there, uh, who would heartily agree with me that it's very hard to get. Christians nail down on exactly what the essentials are. So you just kind of naively believe that you've got the list of essentials that all oh. other Christians agree with you on, and that is just demonstrably okay. not true. Okay, so so no, let, let me admit in humbleness, I think that you've pointed out some stuff where my that's why I define Christ, Christianity proper. I'm like, well, minimally, it's it's these propositions because. 
you know, I've, I've seen that I could come across a Bible verse and then I realize, oh, well, there's also this. So, but it's, I have a consistent method for doing that. I allow the Bible itself to tell me, you know, so if you point to Jeremiah chapter 33 and it, it says, you know, the mustard seed, you must believe in the mustard seed as the smallest seed to go to heaven. Then I'd be like, okay, that's an essential belief then. I, I, I add that proposition. I didn't know that was in the Bible or something like that. But I, I have a method for determining that's consistent, systematic, and biblical. I'm letting the Bible define what Christianity proper is. So many, many people would already have um, taken you out, it would ignore your list of essentials just by you admitting that you think that Jesus could be wrong. Uh, they would say that essentially Jesus cannot be wrong. That would be, that would be a part of their essentials, and it's not a part of your essentials. So just just as an example, you're wrong. You do not have some airtight list of essentials that supersedes everyone else's airtight list of essentials. Everyone has an airtight list of uh, essentials. Everybody thinks they're right about this stuff. They are not. And so at the end of the day, your sufficient attachment does not prove anything. The best that it can prove is the thing that you force me to accept in the proposition, which is that uh, the resurrection is true. Great. The resurrection is true. Does not prove anything else about uh, Christian propositions. And the only thing I have to point to to make my case is the tens of thousands of Christian denominations that agree with me. Okay, so yeah, I would just come back that... Like I said, I, I agree with you on stuff like the existence of Adam and Eve on a balance of, I'm 95% sure that this needs to be true and can't be an error, but I'm just allowing a chance that there could be errors. I, I'm not saying, I'm saying that it's possible Jesus could have made errors and Christianity yeah, the, is still the, true. The, yeah, going back to Adam and Eve, though. So, Adam and Eve, you would say, well, the only way you would say that it's not true is if you also say that it's not as an essential doctrine. <laughs> so, you know, this is how the shell game is played. Uh, so you haven't, you haven't yeah. actually sufficiently attached anything to anything. No, but everything, the essential, put it this way, the essential, the minimum essential propositions that I define as Christianity proper, they are at minimum, essential doctrines that I think are sufficiently attached given the resurrection. If I find out there, there should be added ones, great. I'm not closed-minded that if you want to, if you somehow prove to me that the snake is an essential doctrine and you convince me that that's, is a, the Bible says that verse has to be true or that the, must, the mustard seed is an essential doctrine in the way that I define by allowing the Bible itself to explicitly or implicitly entail that this proposition is essential, then I'll say, great, okay, I'll add that there. And then if you can prove that's an error, then, okay, you know, to whatever degree you convince me that that's probably an error, I'll say Christianity's probably false and can't be true. So I'm not actually going to try to convince you to add things to your essentials list. You should talk to other Christians about that because they have different lists than you. So I don't see why I should trust you on what's essential and therefore what is sufficiently attached to the resurrection and what's not. Uh, so put it this way. My, my list, you said there's no one can agree. My, my list is the same as Gary Habermas's. My list is the same as William Lane Craig's, uh, Paul Copan's. Uh, they, they have the same minimal list that I do. So 
some people could agree. They 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 certainly well, read I don't, the Bible. I don't know I mean, that I say sc- that no two people could agree. If I did, I was being uh, hyperbolic. Okay. But you know, we all we okay. have to do is look at the different uh, Christian seminaries and look at their lists of essentials. I mean, never mind churches. Just look at the seminaries that teach people. Their lists are are, are slightly different. So I'm okay. I'm sorry. I don't I don't buy this idea that all the Christians agree. Uh, the Pentecostals uh, and Charismatics don't agree with the Southern Baptists, and they don't agree uh, yeah. with the Methodists, uh, and you know the Calvinists don't agree with the Arminianists. And many of these agreements are over salvation issues. Don't tell me that everyone has the same list of essentials, and it's just a matter of looking at what the Bible says about what's essential. Okay, so, okay, so, yeah, I was just going to say, like, because I, I see this repeatedly in your, in your um, argument. You, you like to just sort of, well, this is what they say, therefore it's equally valid. That, you know, I, I've put thought into how we should define what's essential. I, I, I don't have a complete list. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I put thought at, at the very least into what some of those propositions are and the uh, method of how we do that. And I'm saying, well, if the Bible, the New Testament documents are sufficiently attached, then the that is the way. We should allow the Bible to speak for itself and not read things okay. in. Who knows? Biblical inerrancy is, is an essential belief according to my pastor. He's that he's not getting that from the Bible. He's using that based he on thinks he's getting it from the problem. Bible, uh, Dale. He thinks he's getting it from the Bible. No, Do you doesn't. disagree with John he, Calvin? He's a, you, I've asked Cal- him where he gets it from. So okay, no, he you, you he, disagree he with from Calvin? Human tradition. He got it yeah. from the Bible, or at least he thinks he does. Uh, you you yeah, disagree? You disagree this. with the Pope? <laughs> you know, the Pope has a passing familiarity with the Bible. I'm just saying, you know, I'm using these big examples to to just try to bring you down from this ledge of this. This everyone can agree if everyone just looks at the Bible nonsense. They're all looking at the Bible, Dale. It's not it's not about the being able to but, agree on but everything we're in talking Scripture, about, but we're I'm talking saying about they can salvific agree. issues. I've named different groups that disagree yeah. on salvation, okay? So I am not talking about mustard seed disagreements. I'm talking about salvation agreements. And you need to at least agree on the uh, idea that Christianity, Christendom, Christendom is full of disagreements on salvific matters. salvific matters matters that are like if you mean by salvific matters like calvin the calvinism versus molinism or armenianism or yes um of course but that like the different okay romans chapter 8 verses 28 to 30 or romans chapter 9 these are calvinist proof texts i i don't think it does prove what they say there's disagreement there and it's it's a it's an important theological doctrine that's tan tangent tangential to essential beliefs, but it's not in and of itself an essential belief. The Bible doesn't say that, okay, well, you need to believe. It doesn't even well, imply they think it. You have to be a Calvinist. I think. They, they think it's essential. Yeah, but where, and, okay, and the Catholics, so the question the is Catholics where certainly they, think that the sacraments they, are essential, for instance. And So what, how did they arrive at that what? conclusion? It, it's probably human. I'm an tradition. atheist. How, don't how do don't people, ask me. I'm... <laughs> 
No, no. Well, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is what you need to ask. Don't just mind, you just seem to mindlessly believe them. Well, they claim this. It must be true. Mormons no, claim this. What it I must be true. What I'm Let's believing from them is that they care about the Bible the same as you do. See, I used to be, I used to yes. sit in your seat of judgment too, Dale. Uh, I was, and I had a taller judgment seat than you do. Uh, I, I believed that everyone was going to hell. This is true. I believe that everyone outside of my denomination was hellbound because because my denomination was the one and only true denomination because you see we had a set of essentials also and and we were and we were fairly uh unique in our set of essentials I can't think of any other denomination that agreed with all of our essentials and so they were out now where did we get them from we got them from the bible my friend we were we were among the most bible believing bible uh, uh, con- concerned group of people I know of denominationally. Now, you can say we were wrong about our interpretation of the Bible, and I agree with that. I would look back on it now and say, yeah, I think we were wrong. But you, what you can't say is that we weren't getting it from the Bible. Everyone else is too. Dale, they're not just making crap up. They, they are sincerely following what their hearts are telling them that the Bible is saying. And they are sufficiently attaching things like the resurrection to their belief in what they think the Bible is saying, just like you are. So let me say this, then. You're, I don't think you are getting it from the Bible. You may be getting your specific opinions like about Calvinism or something based on a biblical verse, but you're actually using headcanon. I, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it's your church and you had... Well, biblical inerrancy is true. Therefore, I can take whatever's in the Bible and that it's all essential. You're using headcanon to define Christianity. That's proper. what I mean that, about the seat of judgment, Dale. You, you are, you are judging. Is that not true? You are judging me and my former denomination. And by the way, millions of others, Am maybe right billions of others, on whether or not they are getting their opinions from the Bible to the best of their ability. They are getting their opinion from the Bible the same way you are. And if they have some headcanon mixed in there, they have no more headcanon or less headcanon than you do. But you believe that you have a different perspective that means that you're getting yours purely from the Bible. Everyone else has something else mixed in. That's what everyone else thinks. This well, is this no, is I'm, I'm this is gonna, the problem. No, I, but, but you are okay, you have so you have just judged dis- me and 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 my past uh, companions. Well, it's, a, it's over not yeah, really I'm, getting it from the Bible. You're not really getting it from I'm, the Bible, then, I'm, are you? That's what you said. Okay, so so let me say this then, because yes, judgment is fine. It, we're allowed to spiritually discern, and I'm I'm bringing this up as to based on what I've heard from you, what you've given mm-hmm. me, and I'm saying this is what I think. Is happening, and I don't think you would disagree. Would, would you deny? Was my assessment of you incorrect? Did you have this notion? And I, first of all, before I get into that, yes, I'm using headcanon. My undue confusion is headcanon. I, I happen to think this is the correct way to do it. I'm presenting my. This is how I come up with Christianity proper. I let the Bible itself tell me what is essential, and I don't. I don't get dogmatic beyond that. I think that's the proper way. You are coming up with headcanon. There's no explicit verse that teaches biblical inerrancy, not even First Timothy, or let alone ones that teach that biblical inerrancy is essential 
to salvation, to achieving salvation. There's nothing in the Bible that teaches that. So that if you're you're kind of saying, well, my head canon is biblical inerrancy, then I use that to everything in the Bible has to be has to be true. That you know the verses on Calvinism, the mustard seed, and that sort of thing. So put it this way: I, I'm putting two head canons to get presenting two two head canons, and I'm I'm saying this is how I think. Christianity should be defined. Let the Bible speak for itself as to what is essential. Uh, if you want to disagree and disagree with that, that, that's fine. I just want to present that. But out of curiosity, was my assessment of how you came to your opinions, you and your church, is that yes. wrong? Was I wrong to you, say you, that? You, okay. ter- terribly how? wrong. In fact, I would say that you would make an excellent fundamentalist. Uh, you, you, <laughs> Thank you. I, I do. Think, I am a fundamentalist. I think they would welcome you with open arms at Westboro Baptist Church for about five minutes, and then they would hang you the moment you start actually talking. <laughs> but, yeah. but, if, but if you just yeah. give your speech from the last 10 minutes, I think they would welcome you uh, with open arms, and that should worry you. Uh, because the fact of the matter is you do have the same cancer that... Almost every other Christian that I grew up with uh, had, I won't say every Christian that I know, because I don't think every Christian thinks like this ultimately, but it's, it's the cancer of thinking that you're looking at the Bible purely and they're looking at the Bible uh, falsely. They're, they're not just looking at the Bible. In fact, you're saying the exact type of things that, that I used to say growing up that uh, that my denomination used to say. In fact, that Southern uh, U.S. Southern religion uh, used to say, "Oh, we're we're just teach the Bible here." I mean, you can see it on uh, church signs. You know, this is the Bible church. We we preach the Bible, unlike those people down the road who just preach the opinions of men. No, this is this is a true Bible church here. You're, this is <laughs> this is what you've just finished t- taking the last ten minutes saying. That you know, you get your truths from the Bible, and that's why they're right. <laughs> but, but these, but everyone else, they're just mixing in headcanon with this stuff. And you know, maybe you'll acknowledge that you've got some headcanon outside of the essentials. But all of your essentials are Bible, uh, pure Bible-based. This is um, this is madness, well, it's, Dale. It's, it's it's madness, and I encourage, I encourage people on both sides of the aisle to write in word. Uh, uh, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com and let us know which one of you think uh, <laughs> thinks is mad <laughs> because we clearly Dale and I but have a is, is there a difference is would you admit that there's a difference in the Bible like the Bible has certain verses which explicitly say the resurrection of Jesus is is an essential belief to be saved you need to believe this whereas it doesn't say that with regard to the mustard seed or to the age of, of a king. There's a there's a difference there, and I'm using it, my it head also it also says say, that circumcision is an everlasting covenant, um, and uh, we know what happened to circumcision. But it doesn't say so. Uh, look, th- okay. so you can't. Okay. Yeah, I mean, with the moment you say, "Oh, the Bible is perfectly clear about this thing," you're already in trouble. The Bible is never perfectly clear about. Uh, anything because things that uh, last week that I you know talked about the Bible was perfectly clear on you said oh no the Bible's not clear on that uh, just in this show uh, you don't think the Bible is perfectly clear about being um, 
you know, about saying different things about generational curses. I think that's perfectly clear. We can never agree on what the Bible is perfectly clear about. This is a part of the problem. So you think that you have your clarity from the Bible and I'm just clouded by whatever. I'm reading the same Bible you are. And I am reading it with the same honest intent as you are. But you think that you're reading it purely and that somehow I'm not. Well, it's it's, it's based on, like, I, I'm using headcanon to come up with a system to judge it. And I, I've told you what that is. It's, it's based on specific verses that the Bible itself tells me are, My are essential. My problem is not with your now, headcanon. Your, My problem is with your insisting that everybody else, that no one else is getting their list of essentials from the Bible if they disagree with you? Um, well, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say well, that. Well, you did because say they, that. They, so you would say it. <laughs> no, no. Oh, well, yes, I would, <laughs> no. I would, I would say that probably, like, I would say it's, it's possible that believing in a literal Adam and Eve is not essential. Because there's no, like, obviously if my headcanon, if you want to argue with my method of, of interpretation of my headcanon, how do I determine Christianity proper, that, that's where we have a debate. And I'm asking you, like, I, I, I've i come up with different ways that, pe- you know, be- people have the biblical inerrancy We're talking, we're talking around each other a little bit. Because what I'm, what I'm mostly commenting on is your scree back about 20 minutes ago when you were suggesting that... Uh, the Bible is clear on its essentials and people like, you know, me and my denomination from the past were not in fact getting their list of essentials from the Bible. I can tell you that there are few denominations in history that cared more about biblical purity and accuracy than my denomination. They got their errors. They got their errors exactly by being extremely careful about doing things exactly the way the Bible said to do them or taking things exactly the way the Bible meant them. Now, I'm not suggesting that they got it right, but I think I can speak uh, for the, the founders of the denomination and most of the members in it that they, from their understanding and perspective, was getting it purely from the Bible and not from culture not from headcanon, not from personal desire. They were, they were taking it from the Bible, and they were as sincerely doing that as you are today. Okay, so let me ask this then. How, if, if I said that your church's interpretation, you said I'm wrong, it, it sounded to me like what you guys would say is you have this headcanon in your head that biblical inerrancy must be true for whatever reason. And then you use that to, okay, well, therefore we just read the Bible. But our denomination our believes that mere biblical inerrancy is a biblical concept. We didn't invent biblical inerrancy. We, we got that, yeah, we got so that, that from that the Bible. Be. Now you say, well, that's not in the Bible. So, you, would, you know, we would then have to have a Bible uh, discussion on biblical inerrancy. But I'm telling you now, your accusation that uh, those people who believe in biblical errancy, you know who you, you rubes are. You know, you idiots, you fools who believe in biblical er- inerrancy. You're not getting that from the Bible. But of course you are. Of course they are. Now, Dale may not think well, you are. It would... It's... it's no, no, I... I'm open. I could be a biblical inerrantist. I think it's possible. There, there's no 
error where I'm 100% certain this is an error. Um, you know, there are ones where I'm very certain it's an error, like like the contradiction between the age of the kings. That that seems like it's a, a scribal error or something. If you if you include preservation problems as part of the inerrancy issue or something like that, but uh, I'm not 100%. I, I've seen some harmonizations that I would say it's at least possible um, that maybe that's true or, or that sort of thing. But uh, yeah, so I just wanted to say like it. What we're not de- we're not debating whether the Bible teaches inerrancy. Um, let's say there is a verse that specifically says everything in Scripture, even the mustard seed, is inerrant or something. It, it's is that how are you determining that's an essential um, an essential doctrine if the Bible itself is not explicitly or implicitly saying that this is ne- this is a necessary belief for salvation in the same way. It is, and I think that you've got in your head, okay, there's a verse that says biblical inerrancy is true, and then you're putting that as a premise in some kind of subconscious argument in your head that, well, biblical inerrancy is true, therefore it must be essential to being a Christian or for Christianity. How you you view the Bible determines how you view any other essential. So if you believe that, the, that everything in the Bible is essential, then your list of essentials is going to be very different from someone who believes that most stuff in the Bible is not essential. Yeah, but do you get my question? I'm trying to figure out with you, because you said I was wrong about you didn't use the headcanon of biblical inerrancy in some kind of argument, you know, like, well, oh, well, this you, verse says you, the Bible's inerrant. Once you understand that the Bible is the word, the inviolable word of God... You, you no longer have to ask the question, so is this thing in it important? Because there's, there's no one from that perspective who's going to look at any piece of the Bible and say, yeah, but that bit's not important. It doesn't matter. God was drunk when he said that. How are you determining it's inviolable, though? Are you saying it was some kind of properly basic belief that you guys had? Or no, something it's not that... a properly basic belief. It was it was. God's word that the Bible was his word and that it was uh, that it was true. That's circular. Sure. Okay. Well, well so that, you can say that it's circular, what... but uh, and I haven't I haven't made an attempt to give to make a biblical case to you on air, although we've talked about uh, some of this off air and I've given you a little mm-hmm. bit of that biblical case. But the fact of the matter is there is there was a biblical case to be made for that. Now, it is not my job as an atheist to make that biblical case anymore, and so I have no intention of doing it. But what I, what I am defending yeah. is that the people who do have that view have a biblical case to make. They are not just making something sure, up or pulling it out of their, their uh, sure. ends to, uh, to get it done. But your, yeah, your accusation uh, was that that's what they were doing and that they were not using the Bible to determine what was essential. That accusation is well, incorrect. Yeah. It is improper. It is inappropriate. And you should apologize for it. Um, well, I, I would apologize, but I'm not going to because that's not what I was meaning. I, I, it's not that I was saying they weren't using some verse that they think teaches, you know, like First Timothy. Um, so I'll, I'll apologize for just the misunderstanding if, there, if that was my fault, you know, when I listened to it. But not for what I said because I, I do think... From what I'm getting, I think it's true. I think you're using this Bible verse as a premise in an argument, some subconscious argument that, well, uh, biblical inerrancy is an essential doctrine because this verse 
this verse says the biblical inerrancy is true. That that's not the way it worked. And you sh- or put it okay. That's your head canon. You can I'm, assess I'm not that. But for other people I'm not out there, defending inerrancy. I am. What I'm I know, defending I'm, I'm, is people's the way people come to their conclusions. And and I I feel like for the last thirty minutes I've been in the position of defending Christians, uh, because yeah. and and I do defend <laughs> well, Christians. Uh, in the sense that I think that for the most part, the serious Christians are sincere and they believe that they are getting their information directly from the Bible, not their headcanon. Those people who think that homosexuality is a sin are getting it from the Bible. And they, they sincerely think that. Those people who believe that homosexuality is not a sin uh, and that it should be accepted are also getting it from the Bible. And you seem to have this this idea. And, and by the way, there are those who would say that homosexuality and your views on it are essential. They think they're getting that from the Bible. And there are those who would say, well, you know, whether you're right or wrong about homosexuality is not essential. They also think they're getting that from the Bible. What you seem to be saying is that some people are just not getting it from the Bible and you have judged them to be making stuff up or being too stupid to read the Bible or being too selfish and including a bunch of headcanon. They're not really getting the pure Bible, but your, your idea of the essentials, you are getting it from the Bible. That's a distinction that you're trying to make. It is an unfair and false distinction. Well, no, it's, it's not because they're using under if my characterization of what I think is going on with these people, let's take the homosexuality. Yes, I agree that the Bible teaches homosexuality is a sin. I'm on your side. There's a Bible verse in there that says that. But the Bible doesn't say that that is essential, an essential belief. It doesn't say if you believe homosexuality is if you don't believe homosexuality is a sin, you're going to hell or you're, you'll you won't be saved. Uh, okay, um, plenty so of people do. Plenty of people I'm, do believe that. And they believe that they can point to scripture to get that. Okay, so so here's what I would say. This is what I'm trying to say to you: is, is you need to assess. Don't just mindless. Well, Christians disagree. This guy says it's essential. This guy doesn't. Let's just oh, can't agree. There's nothing to do. You you can try to assess what what is the, okay. You say total inerrancy, including this homosexuality verse, is must be true in order for Christianity to be true. How do you get there? I, I and, did and try to figure Dale, out. I'm an atheist. That's that's where my assessment yeah, well, led I'm, me. Now you don't like my assessment. <laughs> not, you don't okay, you don't so want I me to assess the Bible. <laughs> so, no, I do want okay, you but to I, assess. So I did. That's why I do this, right? <laughs> so okay. So how? I still don't know what the answer is for you. Then you you haven't answered me as to how you determined that the verse that uh, you know homosexuality is, is a sin is an essential belief. A part. It sounds like you're saying, well, it's in the Bible. The Biblical inerrancy is true as some kind of premise in an argument. Therefore, everything in the Bible is an essential. Yeah, whereas I think I could defend that. I don't. I don't have to. That's not my job to defend Christian positions. All I'm pointing out is that there are many Christian positions. They believe that they came up uh, by them the same way you think you came by yours. They are not different in that respect. You are not better than them. They are not worse than you. I never okay, said that, but, but I, you, you kind of kind of though, because you think that yours comes from the Bible, theirs doesn't come from the Bible. Your in your your idea of essentials. My whole the whole premise of my denomination, Dale, was that we were going to come up with a list of 
uh, essentials upon which all reasonable people could agree. You know what we accomplished? Another minor denomination. That's what we accomplished. So, um, yeah. So, look, at the end of the day, look, I, I'm, I'm happy to have this discussion and put it out there uh, as it is. I yeah. think that um, your case for things being attached does fall apart with the errors, though. I mean, you might you might could argue sufficient attachment if you were also willing to argue inerrancy. Then you could say, well, so everything's sufficiently attached to this miracle, and it's in the Bible, and so you got to accept the Bible or reject it. The moment you the moment yeah. you say, well, okay, but there are errors, and so now all of a sudden everything's not sufficiently attached because the moment you come up with a genuine error that you would say is an error, then you would say, well, that's not sufficiently attached, and your theory falls completely apart. That's that's the part of it where the article is and where the argument is. As far as the uh, rest of the stuff about uh, how we read and understand the Bible, I think that's interesting discussion, probably. Um, secondary and off topic but I'm glad we had the conversation and I am going to yeah. uh, make the hard decision to close it there because I could easily go on on this topic for a long time to come if uh, if you want to hear more about this topic go, go ahead and write in put a comment um, uh, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com that's skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com uh, and uh, we will we will gladly uh, take this conversation in any direction that you like, because as you can see, both Dale and I are prepared to argue about it for days. Um, yes, and, and when you're judging, just just my point is that both are using headcanon to arrive at a conclusion as to what Christianity proper is. So when you're leaving your comments, just remember mm -hmm. that. Evaluate evaluate my headcanon kind of thing. Right, so, yeah. right. Um, Hit cannon. So I, you know, I had something snarky to say, but I'm, gonna, I'm not going uh, to. I'm going to leave it alone. I'm going to leave it alone. People cool. who know me can just imagine okay. some, of the, some of the things that I almost said. So um, with that in mind, uh, rather than talking about our next podcast, I'm going to invite you to listen to the podcasts that are already out there. Uh, Myself, uh, Justin, uh, Andrew, Randall on Unbelievable. Please listen to the Unbelievable podcast. If it's not already in the link, as soon as it airs, I'll put the link in the blog. Um, Randall and I, uh, with round two of the discu uh, discussion on um, the subject of what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, progressive, <laughs> revelation. Of progressive revelation. Progressive uh, it's, it's sad that I know David, you don't. David, so. David <laughs> is pushing fifty. Uh, so okay. <laughs> let's let's see how good your memory Old is <laughs> when when that time comes. Um, uh, uh, yeah. And uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for uh, being with us. Consider this a bonus show. Speaking of bonus shows, expect some bonus episodes in the feed that are uh, solo episodes and uh, with random people like Andrew coming along to talk about random things like the Shroud and whatever happens to be on my mind at the time. And anything that you want to hear in the feed, uh, you can make suggestions there too. And uh, because we both like to talk, yeah. clearly, we would love to talk about it. We'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>